Welcome to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. Be sure to stay tuned to the end of the show to hear how you can get a copy of this program and other helpful documents. And now it's time for Carrie McCoy to get all up in your business. Thank you, Tim. You're listening to KABF in Little Rock, Arkansas. I'm Carrie McCoy, and it's time for me to get all up in your business. For the next hour, my guest and I will be having a conversation of curiosity and storytelling. We will be answering questions via phone and email and giving advice to small business owners and to people who dream of owning a small business. You may be asking yourself, what makes this lady qualified to do this? And I'll tell you, experience. So in a minute, you can email or call and ask me anything. My experience is deep and wide and my advice is free. Forty years ago, with just $400, I started Arkansas Flag and Banner. Since then, it's morphed into simply flagandbanner.com, with sales nearing $4 million. That's worth saying again. I started Arkansas Flag and Banner with just $400, and today we have sales nearing $4 million. I started by selling flags door-to-door, then went to telemarketing, next mail order and catalog sales, and today we rely heavily on the Internet. In addition, over the last 40 years, I've navigated flag and banner through two recessions and two wars. When people find out I'm that woman who owns Arkansas Flag and Banner, they often say, oh, I've heard about you, and began asking me business advice. I amaze even myself with all the knowledge I've gained. If you call me for advice or my guest, you will not be given textbook answers or theory, but you will be given candid advice from real-world experience. So be prepared to hear the truth. It's not always easy to hear. For instance, you may not want to hear this. In business, there are very few overnight successes. Starting and owning a business takes persistence, perseverance, and patience. When I started Arkansas Flag and Banner, I supplemented my income by waitressing, all while I peddled my flags door to door. After nine years, did you hear me? Nine years of working a part-time job, the company began to grow and solely support me. My first hire was a bookkeeper. My first expansion was to begin the manufacturing of custom flags. The next decade ushered in the Desert Storm War. Flags were scarce, so a screen printing department was hurriedly built to meet the consumer demands. In addition to sales and manufacturing, Flag and Banner now has a purchasing department, shipping department, technology, marketing department, call center, and retail store, and I spearheaded each of their development. My experience is deep and wide, and my advice is free. I hope you'll take advantage of this unique opportunity by calling or emailing me on today's show. Before we start taking calls, I want to introduce you to the people at the table. We have Tim Bowen, our technician, who will be taking your calls and pushing the button. Say hello, Tim. Hello, Tim. My guest today is Deborah Finney from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, better known as the EEOC. Currently, Deborah travels the South educating people on the very complex issue of hiring and firing personnel and doing it both ethically and legally. Her 35 years of experience with the EEOC as an investigator and now educator make her uniquely qualified to discuss the laws surrounding employment. Her casual yet informative style also make her a frequent speaker at national conferences. Deborah's areas of jurisdiction are Arkansas, Tennessee, and North Mississippi. Her many work travels have afforded her a unique opportunity to enjoy her two passions, which are 
Barbecue and Blues. Each Friday afternoon, right before this show, Deborah hosts her very own KABF radio show called Blues House Party, and she's been doing it for 25 years. Here to provide us with practical applications and tips on employment is EEOC District Manager Deborah Finney. Hey, thanks for having me. Welcome to the table, Deborah. Sure. You know, every employer has a dreaded fear mm-hmm. of the IRS and the EEOC phone call. Right. Can you put us at ease? I can try. <laughs> <laughs> I like to, when I go out and do presentations, I like to say I'm one of the few people in the agency that can say I'm from the government and I'm here to help and mean it. Um, as the outreach and education manager, um, I'm not involved with investigations any longer, and I am a resource for employers um, if they have questions and uh, have situations that they want to run by someone. So I, you know, I get a lot of calls. I get a lot of calls from employers, um, and likewise, I help advocacy groups too. I mean, just do the you, general public. Do you want phone calls? Um, yes, if you have a question, because. The way I view my position and our intent with doing outreach and education is it's preventative. We are trying to prevent discrimination from happening by educating people as to what they can and can't do or what they should and shouldn't do. And a lot of times people just don't know. They just don't know what they're supposed to do. That's right. I think most of the people, when they make mistakes, they make it in, uh, in ignorance. I agree. I mean, sure, there's deliberate discrimination. It exists. It's out there. We see it. But I think a lot of businesses, particularly small businesses that may not have an HR department, they don't have an attorney on staff, they don't even have an attorney on retainer, Um, they may have started so small that the wife or the sister-in-law is now the HR person. Yeah. (laughs) They just don't know. They don't know. And that's not a defense. If a charge is filed against them, that's not going to be a defense. So that's why we want people to learn. We want them to know what's required. So the EEOC is in place specifically for what? To remedy and stop employment discrimination based on race, sex, religion, national origin, age, color, disability, genetic information. Good list. (laughs) It expands. You sound like you said that a few times. Just a few. <laughs> um, I think we may get a lot of people calling in asking you questions about both employees and employers. Mm-hmm. You told me when I met you that you loved your job and you found it rewarding. Mm-hmm. I do. What is it about your job you like? Well, um, as an investigator. Which I'm, is what you did before you were an For educator. 23 years, yeah. Um, I'm naturally inquisitive, which is a way of saying I'm nosy. So, <laughs> um, and I loved um, doing investigations and putting the, you know, putting the puzzle together and, and seeing if the law was violated um, and remedying if it, if, if it was. Um, moving on to education has been very rewarding because I get out and I meet so many different people. I meet business owners, uh, small business owners, um, the immigrant community who are starting their own businesses and have questions. And then on the advocacy side, we work with our advocacy groups too, you know, for whoever they may represent, women's groups, um, NAACP, groups like that, um, to educate them as well. Because we want people to know what their rights are and what isn't covered because a lot of people seem to think that everything unfair is against the law 
and it's not. I mean, the law's pretty specific, you know. I think that's true because uh, sometimes someone will leave Arkansas flag and banner and they'll be mad at me for whatever reason and they'll say, I'm going to call a lawyer and I'll say, for what? And they'll go, you were mean to me. And I go, that's not against the law. Right, right. And I'm never mean to anybody, but they'll, you know, if they're leaving, they're usually not happy about something. I've had to tell people many times as an investigator when you're counseling individuals who come in to talk to you about a work situation or to file a charge um, and they haven't identified anything that lends itself to believe that that it would be something that would fall within what we enforce Um, and they say but it was unfair and it's like you know unfair isn't unlawful unfair is unfair but it's not necessarily unlawful and there's no law that legislates fairness can you bullet what is unlawful can you make a Mm -hmm. bullet list of what is unlawful yeah okay any employment action from pre-hire the application process to even after you're terminated which can include references that is based upon a person's race sex religion national origin age 40 and above color disability genetic information or in retaliation for um, participating in EEO activity for filing a charge or complaining of discrimination or being Uh a witness so any action you do that you can prove was done maliciously because of one of these topics you just listed is unlawful yes but there's also a provision of the law um, where you may have a facially neutral policy and you're not doing it with the intent to discriminate, but you do. And let me give you an example. Okay. So let's say you have a um, policy where you want everyone who works for you to be clean shaven. No beards, no mustache. Okay. Um, that policy could have an adverse impact on a particular group of people um, in a couple of different ways. Someone, because of their religion, may need to wear a beard or wears a beard, or there is a condition that affects uh, men of color, pseudofolliculitis barbae, which most people just call shaving bumps, and the solution is they wear like a quarter-inch beard. So there's been cases over the years that we've pursued Um, police departments, fire departments, things like that, that have had that um, requirement that you not have a beard. And if someone um, has PFB and the department says, no, you know, our policy is clean shaven, then that creates, their intent is not to discriminate against someone. It's a facially neutral policy, but it ends up with the result of discriminating against someone. Because of health problems or religion. Right. But it was frequently the the adverse impact theory goes to race because it was only men of color who had that. That was even prior to the Disability Act. So medical didn't even come into play, you know. Yeah. So, And the same thing sometimes with height and weight requirements, um, just different things that can have an adverse impact. Height requirements can have an impact on a woman, on women, or people of particular cultures, you know, so... It's a great opportunity for people to call in and ask questions of Deborah because I know that I got the dreaded call last year from the EEOC. I didn't even know what it was. And I had to go through the investigative process and it is the scariest thing I've ever done. And I knew that I didn't do anything intentional, but I did feel like I had to defend myself. And uh, in the process, I learned some things I should have done different in my processes. Right. 
So for employers to protect themselves, when you go to teach, what's the first thing you teach? As outreach and education, we have a couple of different things we do. We go out and talk to SHRM groups, employer groups, chambers of commerce, any kind of group that wants to hear from us, we'll go out and talk to them, and whatever the topic is they want. Um, But we also do paid training for employers. They can hire the EESC Training Institute to come in and train like managers or employees um, and do training. And then we also have annual seminars. So like we have one every year. This year we're having it in Hot Springs on August the 17th at the Hot Springs Convention Center. And it's a day-long training conference. Um, there's six workshops. You choose three to go to and there's two plenary sessions. That's perfect. It is. It is. Are you teaching it? I typically run it so I don't get I did get to teach one class last year but you'll be (laughs) there running the show I run it um, but we have like our district director our regional attorney our managers we have them there teaching and it also allows employers and their representatives to meet the people that they have to interact with at the EESC so maybe it's not quite so scary when they get a charge because they've met someone or they have a resource now someone they can call if they have questions but it is scary if you don't know what it is or you just have heard of it but haven't interacted with the EEOC and you get a charge and now we're doing charges digitally so we notify you by email that you have a charge and we're doing everything paperless which is kind of neat you upload your you know your data but if you've been through the process you know we typically request information we may make a what we call a request for information which is a bunch of questions that we ask you typically about your business your employees depending on the type of charge. We may ask you the race of the employees, the sex of the employees. Uh, we may ask pay information. We may ask who you fired. You uh-huh. know. And, and, and you ask to write a written description of what happened. Position description, right. Because so, that's that's your opportunity to state your side of the story. Because at that point, all we have is the charging party's side of the story. They've come and presented their story to us and filed a charge. Um, and so now we're getting your side of the story. Well, I did not hire a lawyer, and I'm not sure if that was the right thing to do, but I felt like I didn't have anything to hide, and I didn't hire a lawyer. And then I later uh, was told that maybe it was not the smartest thing to do, that you should always hire a lawyer. What do you think about that? Did a lawyer tell you that? (laughs) (laughs) That would be my question. question you know uh i think maybe a lawyer did tell me that actually now that you mention it so i didn't and everything would turned out fine but i wonder if i was just lucky or if your evidence is your evidence okay um you're not required to have an attorney some people do want to have an attorney and that's fine and a lot of people do have attorneys and a lot don't you know it just depends um as long as you're maintaining the record you're supposed to maintain. But I wasn't, and most people aren't. Well, it's just a, a lot of small subjective. businesses aren't. It's right. very subjective, and it's he said, she said, and what did you document it? Well, no, well, there's your problem. And I'm like, so if you don't document it, it the fault falls on the company. Well, if you can't disprove the allegation. If you can't disprove, yeah, if you can't. And that's why documentation is important. And I knew I should have been, but I'm busy. When employees always get upset, is when the stress level is high. And the Mm -hmm. stress level is always high when you're in your busy season. Mm -hmm. That's always when it is. And that's when you don't have as much time to dot your I's and cross your T's as you should be. Well, I had an employer tell me that um, it was a fire department. And they work 24-hour shifts. 
the city attorney um, said that there was a lot of downtime. And he felt that the downtime, because they're there for 24 hours and they're not fighting fires for 24 hours, and there's so many hours you can clean the truck and ready the equipment, um, that it gave them a lot of time to think of things to complain about. <laughs> so there could be two sides to that story, Carrie. We're real busy and everybody's stressful, or we don't have enough things to do. Um, That's hilarious. for small businesses, and, and, and I think it's important for me to stress, too, that um, Title VII, which is the law that started EESC, Title okay. VII um, of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, founded the EESC. We opened in 65. We opened with a backlog, and we have maintained a backlog of charges ever since, okay? So um, we have lost a lot of people. Our agency is, is, is short, short-staffed, you know, and we hire as we can. I've worked at the agency for January. I'll be 36 years. And the highest number of employees we've had was like 3,200 across the country. And we're down below 2,500. Wow. And that's how it is. So when we can hire, we try to fill investigative staff because that's first and foremost for us, you know, um, and attorneys. But the law, Title VII and the ADA, which is the Americans with Disabilities Act, applies to employers with 15 or more employees 20 weeks out of a calendar year. So if you have less than 15 employees, you're not... The law doesn't apply to you. Right, okay. And we're trying to reach those businesses that don't have 15 because we want businesses to grow and we want them to be ready to be prepared so that when they do, they know what they're doing, you know. And if they come to your seminar in August... Yes. Do you hand out forms that they can use? They get um, our eight-volume technical assistance manual for employers, which is written in plain English. It's really good, uh, which covers all of our guidance, all of our law, everything. They get that as part of it. And then, of course, all the materials related to the seminar. Is there is there actually a sheet on this is a sheet you should use when you write up your position employee description? Posi- uh, oh, oh how to write? Yes. Well, we don't tell you this is a sheet you should use, but you know what we tell you is that you need to be consistent in your record keeping and you need to document. Oh, we've got a call. Hey, you're listening to KABF Public Radio. This is Carrie McCoy, and I'm here with Deborah Finney. Do you have a question? I just want to make a comment. This is Bob. I called you now and then. Hey, Bob. How are you? Fine. Y'all are dedicated in this nasty weather. Aren't we, though? I just want to say that I enjoy the show, listen every time I can. I learn something every time I listen. Thanks, Bob. And uh, your guest there, she's one of the DJs. It gives me a whole new outlook about her as far as her show, and I know what she does for a living because I've always wondered about what this woman does for a living. And now I figured it out. She told me not to tell everybody that she has that show. Listen, she's rolling her eyes. Her busted she busted me. I busted her, voice, her. The second her voice, I said, I know who that is. I know <laughs> how that is. And that's the way you should be known as a DJ, right? Right? Well, you give a, yeah, that's right. Well, that's the way you should be known. That's a high that compliment. Great, great topic. And I'm just amazed at the diversity of, of your, uh, your guest. But you're covering all of it. And the thing about it is the things that she's talking about today is things a lot of people find out by accident. <laughs> they don't know. Yeah, like me. Well, they don't know. And, you know, the thing about it is, during the first half of my career, uh, I was kind of the henchman, per se, at a company I worked for. And, and, and when I had to, when there was terminations involved and so forth, and I kind of got to, you know, 
be that person. You know, he used to call me the Grim Reaper in another life of mine and so forth. But the bottom line is there's a right and legal way to do everything you do in a business setting. Well, and you've got to do it right out there at Guatney, I'm sure. Yes, but I don't do that anymore. That was in a past life. I don't have to do that kind of thing anymore. I get to do fun stuff like cookout and give T-shirts out and stuff like that. We yeah, about Deborah that. and I want to come out for one of your cookouts. Well, I'm going to copy you the next time. we. You know, it's crazy, but we, we've already done a cookout this year. Can you believe that? No. We fed the body shop at our uh, other store. But uh, when we when we get an open one, it's like an open event. I'm going to copy you on that and call you and say, hey, Stop by and see Bob, you know, the guy who's got the face made for radio. Here we go. Get your T-shirt, get your burger. But y'all keep it up. Appreciate you so much. Thanks, Bob, You're for calling everybody. In. Take care. Thanks, Bob. Bye-bye. Bye. So EEOC has a small business initiative. <clears throat> there you go. That's and the word we're looking for. We like to go out and talk to groups, um, particularly where there's small businesses. We work frequently with the Small Business Development Center. Jonesboro we go up there and talk they have us up there we've done some with Little Rock we've done some with Monticello we like to go out and talk to small business owners because we want them to know what the law is and to be ready you know but even though you have to have 15 or more the equal pay law you only have to have one employee and you're covered by that Say that again. Equal pay, the Equal Pay Act because your employee can compare themselves with the person who held the job before them in terms of pay, if they feel like they're being paid less wages because of their sex. Right. Oh, I see. Uh-huh. So you can compare. So one of the ways that you do your investigative study is to see if the pay is less. If a person files an equal pay claim with us, uh-huh. um, the requirement is that the employer have one employee. That's it. And they can compare themselves to the person they replaced. So they could say, the person doing the job before me made 40000 a year, and they hired me at thirty-six. Because I'm a woman, they're paying me 36000 a year. And, you know, we can but, investigate that. And all the other laws that you investigate have to be businesses with 15 or more people. Except for the Age Discrimination Employment Act. And you Another have to have, one. <laughs> you have to There's have 20 two. or more. Oh, I see. Yeah. So when you go out to teach a seminar, mm-hmm. what are your main topics that you talk on? It depends. When we're requested to come speak, most people have a couple of topics they want us to talk about. When you go to your seminar in August, what are you going to talk about? Uh, we will talk. We typically talk about what our strategic enforcement plan, enforcement priorities will be this year. And that's where we tell the employers, hey, this is what we have published as our six national priorities. And this is where we will focus the microscope on and, employers. And how do you pick those topics? Are they the <coughs> ones with the most problems that keep coming up the most, or you just randomly go through them? No, this is determined by headquarters, and it's probably based on the types of issues we're seeing, the emerging trends, right? Um, those things like that. Our most frequently filed charge mm-hmm. with our agency is a retaliation complaint. Um, in 2010, I believe, and I'm going from memory, it bypassed race discrimination as the most frequently filed charge. I'm surprised. Well, I'm not. Really? <laughs> no. Because a lot of times people have an issue at work and they may file a charge or they may file a grievance. Um, they may complain about discrimination. Um, and it's hard sometimes if you're a manager or a business owner or supervisor to be called a racist, a sexist, um, you know, someone who discriminates based on age, or it, it's hard for someone to make an allegation against you. And that human nature response is what? To fire you. To get even, right? Oh, to get even. <laughs> because you've said something about me. Um, 
Yes. So we see retaliation. And, and I tell people, you can have what I would call a mediocre, lukewarm initial charge of discrimination filed with us. And then the employer takes an action because of that. And that retaliation claim is red hot. Well, you know? sure. That's kind of silly. Yeah. Do you see people that file claims with you that are reoccurring claim filers? They're kind of working your system? Sure. Frequent filers. Frequent, Frequent filers. filers. Yeah, we have a so few. what do you do about those? Do you have to investigate every one of them? Or no. do you red flag them and say? No. And we don't not investigate because they filed a charge before i guess you know we've learned a lesson in that and that we had um, we've had individuals who have filed many many charges mm -hmm. but that next one they filed there actually was something right you know so um just the mere fact that they file all the time doesn't mean that something hasn't happened to them but we have um, we had such a backlog of cases i can remember back in the late 80s and early 90s having probably 125 cases assigned to me which is very difficult to investigate because you had to investigate every one, like beginning to end, even if you knew the end result was not going to be a violation. You still had to do an investigation. And so your backlog would sit two years sometimes before you could get to it. And it was really frustrating and hard because after two years, People have moved. People have moved on. Witnesses don't remember things. Employers, sometimes, when you're relying on witness testimony, don't remember things. The person who filed the charge doesn't remember things. Could she drop it or he drop it? Or do they you, can. Once it's, okay. They can, but, you know, that's rare that someone drops a charge. Um, well, after they cool off, maybe, or have found another job sometimes, or have moved and sometimes on. Sometimes they've worked out something with the employer and want uh -huh. to withdraw the charge. That happens, too. So in 1996, we implemented across the country, and one of the things, the best thing I think this agency has done, was implemented what we call priority charge handling procedures. And we use them to this date, and it's a refocus, it's a big push right now, in that we can't investigate every charge. You can or can't? We can't. We don't have the resources. So we make a decision um, when that person comes in, if they file, because everyone can file. We can't ever tell anybody you can't file a charge. We can advise them that what you've told us doesn't appear to be a violation or it's untimely. You haven't met the time requirements in getting in. They can still say, I want to file. You know, We can dismiss that charge at any time during the process if we don't think, number one, if there's no jurisdiction, we're going to dismiss it. Number two, if we don't think it's going to result in a violation. Or number three, if they've given... Um, information that what we call self defeats their charge you know uh -huh. it defeats their own claim so we can eliminate charges when they come in the door which was kind of weird for employers when we started doing that in 96 because they were used to getting a notice of charge and not getting any kind of closure document and they were getting a notice of charge and closure document in the same envelope and they were freaked out um, but they're used to it now and, you know, we vary. Um, in Little Rock, uh, the Little Rock area office serves all of Arkansas. They run between 25 to 35%, depending at whatever point in time you're looking at it, in the charges they actually dismiss on the front end. Really? Yeah. That's a lot. That does free you up a lot. I bet that's it very liberating, mm -hmm. too. You're like, oh, I've got some power. Mm -hmm. You said something about if it doesn't meet the time requirement. Right. What does that mean? So under Title Seven and the Americans with Disabilities Act, you have 180 days to file a charge in Arkansas. Oh. From the date of discriminatory action. So if you were fired, you would have 180 days from the day you were fired. I got you. If it's ongoing situation... 
for example, pay, you're being paid less wages and you're still working there, each paycheck is a new violation date. So you have 180 days, but each paycheck is continuing. Uh, under equal pay, you have two years. Under age, you have two years. So I always hire people under these 90-day probation. probation. Is that a real thing, or have I made that up in my mind? A lot of people have probationary periods. Some people have 30. Some people have 90. Some people have 60. Uh, federal government, I think you're like first year. Your entire first year is probationary. So it just, you know. How does that how, And there's no law that, that says you have to have. Basically, I think... What a lot of people, um, in terms of probationary and how they use it, is if you're an employer, let's say you have a, a progressive disciplinary policy that you use, and it's like your first infraction of whatever, you get an oral warning. Your second, you get a write-up. Typically, they don't apply those. You're not subject to those in your probationary period. If you do something and we don't want you here, we're not going to follow our policy is typically how that happens. And so if they came and if they'd only worked for me for 90 days and they felt that I was unfair and they came to the EEOC to talk to you and it was within the 90 day time period, would you tell them that they didn't have a case? No, because they can say, I mean, they can still allege that whatever action you're taking or whatever treatment you did was because of race, sex, religion, national origin, age, or color. Your probationary uh, period doesn't affect whether or not there's coverage. So I still need to write them up in the first 90 days? No, no, you don't have to. It's just, and let me give you an example of cases I've seen where an employer has a probationary period and you're not subject, you're not covered by their progressive disciplinary policy for attendance, okay? And their policy is one that, you know, your first time not coming in, or coming in late, you get a warning. Your second time coming in late, you get a write-up. So it's progressive. Right. But typically, if you're a probationary employee, you, you don't get the privilege of that, okay? You don't get the privilege of being covered by that policy until you come off of probation. So, all right, they come in late. You say something to them, hey, you know, you're still on probation. You're coming in late, whatever. They come in late again. You're like, you know, I, I'm done. All right, fine. They're on probation. But they come to EEOC and say, hey, you know, Joe that was hired the week before me was on probation, and he's come in late three times, and they haven't let him go. So Well, now it's all hearsay. Well, it may not be. I mean, if he's still there. How would you ever prove it that he came in late? Well, employees know what other employees do. But how would the EEOC know? I mean, the employee could be lying to the EEOC. The employee could be lying. So how would the EEOC validate their claim if there's nothing written up because both of them are in their probationary time. One of, them's, one of them says the other one's coming in late because they love to, you know, rat each other out. Mm-hmm. But, well, this, but it's not true. But okay. it's not true. Well, then if you write back and say it's not true, Joe didn't come in late, then if you do clocking in and out, we're going to look at time cards. If uh, you don't, then we will possibly interview other employees. Oh, Because I gotcha. employees know. Right. I gotcha. uh-huh. um, trust me, employees know if somebody's getting something that they don't think they're getting. Right. <laughs> so you, you know do that? it through. So you do it through an interview. You come in be. and do yeah, interviews. Sure. It could be. It could be corroborated by interviews. So I've been thinking all these years that if they're in the ninety-day probationary period, that for some reason we're a right-to-work state, and that you can fire people without having to you document can, it and do all this. You can fire individuals for any reason except for a discriminatory reason. So yes, it's a right to work state and you have the right to terminate someone with or without a write-up if that's what you choose to do. But 
you don't have the right to terminate someone because of race, sex, religion, national origin. Oh, I see what you're saying. So even if somebody else came in and they were both coming in late and... Uh, you let one person get away with it. And, and one person didn't. And the reason was because of race. And the race, reason sex, was, which would be yeah. extremely hard to prove. What Could be. Yeah, I mean, you could make a decision that there's no explanation other than the difference in sex or the difference in race. So does you know? attitude play into that at all? The, the, sure. the employee's attitude? Sure. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons why you may keep someone and not someone else. And that's an acceptable excuse is, well, they have a good attitude and they don't. But that's you need an acceptable to be a, excuse. But you need to be able to define how they have a good attitude as opposed to how the other person didn't. Yeah, that seems so uh, kind of high school Like, she's nice and she's not. In fact, when I had to write my position statement, I had a really hard time to not sound petty, you know, to make it sound very, you know, well, then they did this, and then it did that, and you know, I thought, God, this sounds so juvenile, having to outline it. So I had to write it three or four times to try to make it as unemotional and fact-like. Does your uh, seminar in August going to help people to write those to where they don't? We actually have, um, on our website, we've published information on how to write a good position description, what you need to include in that. Oh, I should have read that. Yeah. So in our Small Business Resource Center, which is on our website, www.eeoc.gov, G-O-V, and you you can see up there a link for employers and small business employers. It has just everything for small business that you can need. We have a small business fact sheet that sort of covers everything um, that a business would need to know where they can get more assistance. Do I get to take these? Look at all these papers sure, you brought. You I'm taking it. these. You can have it. Um, it has your responsibilities. How we can help? Contact yeah. us. Preventing discrimination is good business. Right. This should be up everywhere. Well, it's on our website. <laughs> this is good. Yeah. And our website is user friendly, and I think we have a really good website. And most most of our documents all of our documents, I think, anything that has come out in the past several years is written in plain English. That you makes know? a difference. You don't have to do yeah, speak lawyer not, speak. Yeah, not lawyer speak. Although we still struggle sometimes, you know, with that. Yeah. When, Let, when things are reviewed for legal sufficiency and they send it back to us, we're you, like, come on, <laughs> people don't talk like that. <laughs> Deborah, are you a lawyer? I am not. So this is a right-to-work state, which sounds like a backward statement. What does that mean? It means an employer has a right to hire and fire as they please, basically. Don't, as you, long think that's, don't you think that's said backwards? Right, right to work. To work. Really well, yeah. Yeah, because it makes it sound favorable to you, the employee. <laughs> the employee, but it's not. It's favorable to, <laughs> to the, the employer. employer. Yes, it is. <laughs> but if you fire for any of the reasons you said, sex, religion, race, color age retaliation and not only fire if you you know job assignments promotions uh ah, good hours assigned uh wages um all of that is covered and you know we get a lot of harassment charges harassment is a huge issue that is filed with the eoc harassment based on race based on sex um, based on religion based on disability and that's an area, when I get asked to come train at employer sites, harassment is usually the number one thing we're asked to come train on. They want us to talk to all employees. They want us to talk to managers. 
Um, and we do that training a lot. And also on the Americans with Disabilities Act, even though the law has been enforced since 1992, I mean, it passed in 90, went into full effect in 92, it's still so confusing for employers. They, the which one? Americans with Disabilities Act. What's confusing about it? I think a lot of it is the reasonable accommodation process where the law says that if an individual has an impairment that rises to the level of a disability that the employer has to make an accommodation so that they can continue to do their job. Obvious would be if a person uses a wheelchair and they can't get through a door. That's obvious. But sometimes it's not something obvious. Sometimes a person may have an impairment, let's say a back impairment, and they have a lifting restriction. And frequently employers freak out about that. Like, oh, they can't do their job anymore. Well, you know, not necessarily. There's things that they maybe can do. Um, so we do a lot of training on the ADA as well. Employers always have questions about that. We've got a caller. Hello, caller. You're on the air with Deborah Finney from the EEOC and Carrie McCoy. Have you got a question for us? Yeah, I have a question. I enjoy your program. Uh, given the uh, burden of proof changes that have taken place when it comes to an employee uh, bringing a charge of uh, racial discrimination or, or, or whatever against an employer, what are some of the items or, uh, that an employee would need to have in order to uh, show where there are charges of discrimination? Well, it would depend upon the issue, and, and I'm not sure what you mean by the burden of proof change. There's not been a legal, you know, legal standard change in the burden of proof. Um, and depending upon what the person is complaining about, the legal theory and what we call the models of proof changes, right? So right. if a person is saying I wasn't hired because of my race or my sex, then what you look at is, number one, was the person qualified, right? And did they apply? And were they rejected for the position? And um, did the respondent or the employer give a legitimate non-discriminatory reason for the rejection? And then is there evidence of pretext, meaning the reason given by the respondent or the employer, is that wrong? Is it a lie? Is it a cover-up, basically? Is it pretextual? So those standards of proof haven't changed. Um, it just depends upon the situation that a person may find themselves in. It's always good for an individual to document. If they're starting to have a problem, they can document. Um, we don't And ever. you mean document by just writing down day-to-day mm -hmm. -day what's mm -hmm. going on. Write down or some dates. take a picture with your phone. And we get that. Um, you would not believe the number of people that come in with their phone. With <laughs> video recordings and pictures um, of things that have happened. Or text messages sent to them. Things that coworkers have posted about them on their Facebook page. Uh, you know, things like that. Hey, people are so stupid sometimes. I just can't get over it. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> So if you've got any kind of documentation like pictures, text messages, right. or right. And you're sometimes, in the money. Yeah, it, it can be. It depends. Um, if it's not something where the records are going to show um, frequently in a harassment complaint or something like that, well, his it's, was, his it's was relying raised. heavily on witness testimony. So his was on race. His question but was even if it race. was on race, if he was saying race based on I was terminated because of my race, that's document heavy. We can look at other people who've been terminated. And the actually the appropriate comparison is other people who have done the same or similar thing that you were terminated for and what happened to them. OK, so that's the appropriate comparison. But in an allegation where it's heavily relied on witness testimony, I mean, there's not a whole lot you can do because sometimes witnesses 
don't always come forth. Uh, sometimes witnesses don't say what they may even tell you they're going to say, you know. Right. Is, so, so, is that what you're thinking of in, in, along those lines? Right, right. Uh, uh, if I can voice it correctly, it appears that uh, when it comes to documenting, uh, uh, for example, if you are employed and you see examples where there's uh, double standards when it comes to how employees are treated, then I think what you're saying is that uh, keeping documentation goes a long way in proving uh, what the employee is going through, uh, and will help will help the court determine what's a, what's what's actually going on uh, uh, with that employer. Sure, it, if something yeah. was said or done, and you made a note of it, you may even make a note of who was present, who else was present that witnessed it. You know, and just put right. the date on it. Yeah, so. Easy to do with our phones. We can send but voice then, notes to ourselves. But then know that you're going to come in there and you're going to ask and you're going to interview all the people that work there and find out if the claim is correct. Right, right, right. And, and uh, second question, uh, do you find it hard uh, to find lawyers who want to take up racial discrimination cases when it comes to uh, uh, suing an employer? It was incredibly difficult prior to the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1991 or two, and I'm going back, and I should know the year, but I'm going from memory. You know a lot of stuff. <laughs> because there was no cost recovery for an individual representing a plaintiff, meaning they couldn't get attorney's fees, so the individual had to fund the lawsuit their, their self, which is quite expensive in federal court, okay? Right. But there are still attorneys who practice and do accept cases, but they make a judgment too, based upon the information you bring them and, you know, in their estimation, is this something that is gonna benefit, you know, the person and myself, because this is their business, this is how they live, this is, you know, they've got to make a living too. Um, there are attorneys here that still practice and, and take cases and, you know, do very well with them. And we maintain in our legal office, um, we maintain a list of attorneys. If an individual um, says, I need you to refer me to attorney, we'll give you the next three names on the list. Now, we don't say this person is a good attorney, a bad attorney, anything like that. Um, these are just attorneys who've contacted EEOC and say, I practice and, you know, please give my name. So, so you're a source for the attorneys. That's yes. good to know. Well, thank sure. you, caller. I hope we answered your question. Thank you all. You're welcome. Uh, do you see a lot of frustration with employers? Sure. Do you think substance abuse is a big problem for Americans? I know that in my job and hiring today that one of my problems is substance abuse. And I don't drug test because I feel like it's, a, uh, I feel like it's an invasion of the privacy. Um, so I don't drug test. Do you have workers' comp coverage? I do. Do they require you to drug test if no. there's a workers' comp injury? Uh, only if there's an injury. Right. But I don't do it on a daily basis. Yeah. A lot of employers do drug testing, and drug testing is okay as long as you're, you know, drug testing everybody consistently. Right. Um, or for cause. Uh, if you suspect someone has reported to work, um, you know, inebriated or... Under the ADA, it gets tricky. Um they specifically excluded drug testing because of the Drug-Free Workplace Act, okay? What does that mean, the Drug-Free Workplace Act? There's the Drug-Free Workplace Act where employers are allowed to drug test individuals. Oh. Uh, when the ADA was drafted, they specifically excluded drug testing, okay? But that doesn't mean that there can't be a charge filed because we've seen charges where 
Um, they have selectively tested individuals, oh. and it may indicate based upon a person's race that they were tested when other people were not. Okay, that could be a race discrimination issue. But my issue is I don't know is is I know they're doing drugs, but I've not drug tested them. You and I've talked about this actually, mm -hmm. but I'm not drug testing them. So it's hearsay on my part to say, well, the person is not here because they're not drunk at work, but they're obviously under a, the influence of something, of something. Of something. And I don't drug test unless, and so can you speak to that at all? Well, that's kind of on you, Carrie. I need I to mean, be drug testing? Well, no. I mean, just can, because you don't drug test, if someone reports to work under the influence, you could drug test for cause. So I can drug test for yeah. cause on that one thing. You could drug test anytime you want. But then they would say she didn't drug test anybody else. But so that would be any, discrimination. Did maybe. anybody else exhibit signs of being under the influence at oh, work? Oh, so there's the loophole. So, yeah, you need to, you know, look at that. And did you drug test based on race, sex, religion, national origin, age, color, disability? <laughs> if you didn't, then, you know. Um, but one of the things people don't realize, and a lot of people contract to have someone do their drug testing. And there's a procedure by which you do drug testing so that you don't violate the ADA, okay? So while you can do a drug test, there's a proper procedure that the, the drug test has to be done. So the procedure is that if the, you send someone for a drug test and they go, a lot of times whoever's doing the drug test gives the person a paper to fill out and they say, list all medicines you're taking, okay? They're not supposed to do that. The only thing they're supposed to do is if something shows up on the drug test is to come back and say, do you have a lawfully prescribed prescription for this that showed up on your drug test? If they do, then it's not a positive screen, okay? If they don't, then it's a positive drug screen. And the reason being is they don't have the right to know what medicines you're taking that, that won't show up on a drug test. So THC will show up on a drug test, right? Mm -hmm. But you could legally be taking it. You could have it, there's a pill that they prescribe for individuals with a certain eye condition. We had a, a case on this. Um, individual uh, backed into uh, something on a forklift. Didn't really do damage, but because it was an accident, work was drug tested and some THC showed up. It was a, I think it's called Marinol. It's a prescription pill that the individual was taking because of a degenerative eye condition. So the employer fired them because of a positive test, but it was a lawfully prescribed prescription. If I decided I didn't care if they had THC in their system. That's okay. I Is mean, that okay? Or would workman's you, comp quit? quit? Now, I can't tell you what workers' comp would See, do. See, I, I, I think if I drug tested and found that some of my great employees had some THC in there and then I would have to fire them, it would be counterproductive to Arkansas Flag and Banner. I understand what you're saying. So, what so do you we think don't have a requirement. You don't have a requirement. But we frequently still see individuals doing drug testing wrong. And even if you contract with someone to do your drug testing and they do it, you're going to be liable because you've contracted. And I, and I can still say to the EEOC, I believe, suspect they were on drugs and that's why I let them go, even though I don't drug test. And that would be a valid, that would be a valid thing to say. Yeah. Okay. And if, if you can... You know, have you documented specifically the behavior, right? Document, document, yeah. document, document. If Absolutely. we've learned one thing today, it's document. take the time to write it down. Even if it's not written well, just write it down. Write it down. And so, be consistent. 
Be consistent. Because if you write it down for one and don't write it down for another, then that's discrimination. And be consistent in your... Um, so I am my own human resources. I'm, right. working, I'm the owner. I load the dishwasher at night. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I take the trash out. Although my employees probably disagree with that, but I do, <laughs> and uh, and so I have to do the human resources also. Yep. And it, you do have a tendency to just push it off mm -hmm. because it's not in your face right then. Right. But it's worth taking the time to it do it, even if you just time. scribble it on a piece of paper, put the date on it, don't even make it a formal official thing, and throw it in there. Do you have to have the employee sign it? No. If so you're if you're just keeping notes for yourself. Um, is that valid? Is that sure. usable? Sure. Okay. Last, we probably only have time for one more question. What do you think the biggest hurdle facing American workers and employers is today? Hmm. That's a big one, isn't it? Yeah, you, sh you should have shot me that one in the email so I could think about that. <laughs> sure. So you've got six topics you're going to talk about in August, you said, in Hot Springs. We'll have six workshops and then two plenary sessions. And one of them, you said, was going to be uh, uh, retaliation. We always do retaliation, and, and we always do workplace harassment. That was Those saying, two harassment. are the things that people really want to know about. But I really want small businesses to know they, that each district has a small business liaison. Um, in our district, that's me. So if you go to EEOC's website and go to that Small Business Resource Center, we're calling it, you can contact whatever small business liaison is in your district. It tells you. And so they want to they want to help you. We help you. You're not ratting yourself out. I think some people no. think they're scared of that, but they really need to know you're there to help them be successful. And I don't I don't take the information and run down the hall to investigations and say, hey, this employer called about this. That's not the purpose. That's Does not education even talk to the investigators? Well, yeah, we talk to investigators because you know they're there, but <laughs> but no, we don't um, share information. If people need help, that's what I. Would. And one other thing. That I would like to say, and you hated putting together a position description, you could have avoided that entirely if you'd gone to mediation. EEOC has a very successful mediation program, and nine out of ten cases in Arkansas that go to mediation, they are successfully mediated, and the investigation's over. Well, I that's, think that's an astounding number. You know? So if you get a call from the EEOC, you should go to mediation. Absolutely. All right. Tim's got a question. Yeah, someone just uh, sent me a text message. Uh, they want to know... Can you legally, secretly record interactions with your boss? Okay. That's a good one. As I understand it, and I'm not an expert in that area, if they did, we would still use that information in a proceeding, okay? Whether it's legal or not, I can't comment on that because that's not my area. Although I think, I think what the law says in Arkansas is if one person to the conversation is aware of the recording, it's legal. So if you're the person recording and you're aware of the recording, I think it's legal. But that's not our area to say whether it's legal or not, and we will use it. So, so I'd say yes. So whenever you're going to have a conversation with one of your employees about something, tell them to put their phone on the desk. <laughs> <laughs> I think I just learned that today. If I didn't learn anything else today, you know how trusting I am, Tim. He knows. But, you know, but people, particularly in harassment cases, they really do really stupid things. And case in point, the one case I think about, we had an individual, a female, working in what would probably be a traditionally male environment, okay, auto parts sales. Right. Left her phone on her desk, went and did some things, came back, noticed it was moved, okay, looked, there was a picture on it. Someone had picked up her phone, dropped his pants, took a picture. 
okay? The red zone. And, but not entirely smart, what you could also see his shoes. So she knew who it was, God. right? So when we went to court, yes, we did. We blew that picture up and it was in court. And we asked him, is this your picture and did you take it? You know, but. Um, I want to be in the EEOC for that <laughs> stuff. That's awesome. But, I mean, it, employers need to be aware. Um, Don't take pictures of your penis. And that's a pretty that's pretty simple but they also need to make sure their employees know that harassment is not tolerated in the workplace because they're going to be liable for it right depending on the situation and they need to educate their employees about that they need to not let it happen and they need to set the standard for how workplace behavior is right i just want to know if that guy was drunk at work or something i mean no. what's up with that that's <laughs> no. hilarious i mean that's not hilarious but it's bizarre it's common it is. It's common. Yeah, I'm changing occupations. I want to see these. We can swap. Well, you bring me all those pictures, will you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't do that. <laughs> so you're a connoisseur of barbecue. Yes, I love barbecue. And uh, you love blues. I do. And you told me that you like to go on the blues cruise. Yes, two weeks. Tell everybody what the Blues Cruise is. Oh, man. We're, we spend a week in the Eastern Caribbean um, on Holland American Line, and it's all Blues Cruisers, so it's a charter trip. And we sleep very little, drink maybe a little too much, and enjoy a lot of blues. But you're on a boat, so nobody cares. We're on a boat, so nobody cares. So employers <laughs> all need an arrow in their quiver to keep us out of trouble. What do you suggest every employer make sure that they do? I think it's document, document, document. Well, and I think familiarize themselves with all the laws. And all of our information is on our website. You should never not know the answer to a question because you can go to our website and find it. I think we just don't ever think it's going to be us and that it's going to ever happen to us. True. I mean, I think people that know they're being bad a lot of times have already read your website. But people that are, you know, kind of naive... You know, just never think it's going to really happen to them. My experience, there are some bad actors out there. What does that mean? There's employers who do bad things. Oh, and yeah. they do bad things maliciously, and they know they're doing bad things. That's right. Okay? There are. And that's what you're there for. But by far, in my time doing investigations and even doing education, the bulk of the people that I've interacted with want to do the right thing. Those employers want to do the right thing. Um, so when you talk about EESC and, and employers do, you know, hate the term EESC and, you know, they're scared of yeah. it. Yeah. Um, I like to, you know, assure employers when I'm talking to them that I know that the bulk of them want to do the right thing and we want to help them do the right thing by education and, um, you know, to prevent. And if they have questions to call me, email me, um, that's what I'm there for. And if every employer did the right thing then we wouldn't need the EEOC. That would be our hope. Then wouldn't that be a lovely After world I retire. To, wouldn't that be a lovely <laughs> world to live in? All right, thank you to the EEOC District Manager, Deborah Finney, for sharing her words of wisdom with us today and making such a difficult subject and hard to talk about, easy to talk about. Look, Thanks. I know you're a cigar smoker. Oh, thank you. That's a Isn't good that one. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, or would you rather have this one? I no, think this is fine. Your husband yeah. might would rather have one of these. Y'all can share that He's one. over there like, mm. He doesn't smoke cigars. He's we so know who wears the pants in this family. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't say anything. I wish everybody could see how nice your husband is. He's just, he's just, 
He's just charming. We call him St. Chuck for he, a reason. I, he mm-hmm. is St. Chuck. Um, <laughs> because he's married to the devil. <laughs> no, he's not. That is not true. That is so not true. You are a good girl, and you are doing the right thing by the, all of us out there. So that cigar came from the Humidor Room, Colonial Wine and Spirits on Markham Street in Little Rock, Arkansas, and we appreciate them. They're good flag wavers. To our listeners, if you have a great entrepreneurial story, you would like to share i would love to hear from you send a brief bio and your contact info to questions at upyourbusiness.org that's right and someone will be in touch i'd love to hear from you next week i'll be gone so rj martino owner and founder of iprob and it management and digital marketing agency will be sitting in for me rj was my very first guest when i started the show back in september of 2016 And this will be his second time to host during my absence. He's really excited. He loves doing it. I don't know who his guest entrepreneur is yet, but as soon as I do, I'll put it online and I'll send out an e-blast to all Up In Your Business subscribers. And finally, I want to thank all of you for spending time with me and my guest, Deborah Finney. If you think this program has been about you, you're right. But it's also about me. Thank you for letting me fulfill my destiny. My hope today is that you've heard or learned something that's been inspiring or enlightening and that whatever it is, it will help you up your business, your independence, or your life. I'm Carrie McCoy, and I'll see you next Friday at 2 p.m. on KABF Radio in Little Rock, Arkansas. Until then, be brave and keep it up. You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. Want to hear today's program again or want someone else to benefit from it? Jot this down. Within 48 hours, a podcast will be available at upyourbusiness.org or at flagandbanner.com. Again, that's upyourbusiness.org. Click on the tab labeled podcast. There you'll find today's segment with links to resources you heard discussed on this program. Carrie's goal, to help you live the American dream.